Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you are blessed by our content, we'd appreciate if you liked and subscribed to our YouTube channel, and feel free to follow us on any of our social media content as well. We are honored today to have on Pastor Rhett Burns from First Baptist Travelers Rest. He's been very gracious to give us his time today, former North Greenville graduate, so we have that in common. Rhett, thank you so much for being here, man. Glad to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yes, sir. As we start every episode, give you an opportunity to share your story, how you came to know the Lord, and then we'll talk about your time in ministry. Sir, so grew up here in northern Greenville County and was blessed to uh, be raised in a Christian family. And so, you know, my parents are believers. They taught us the scriptures, Christ and His Word were honored in our home. We were actively engaged and involved in our local church, Henry Baptist and Travelers Rest. And so, just uh, count that as such a gift um, to be just raised in, in that type of family environment. And so, I was about seven years old, and we had gone, we had revival services at Henry, and we came home. My brother was repeating a lot of the things that the uh, revival evangelists had been saying at church that night. He asked me in his best evangelist voice, you know, are you saved? And you know, as he was kind of repeating the stuff he had heard at church that night, and uh, and I knew I wasn't. And it kind of scared me. And uh, honestly, it probably scared him a little bit, but it had upset me. And so he, he took me down to my parents to share the gospel with me. And uh, and, and there that Sunday night, I uh, believed uh, in Christ and God and his, his mercy saved me then. I uh, was baptized uh, at Ennery Baptist. And, uh, and then kind of from then on, um, you know, kind of, look at the next 10 or 15 years uh, right. throughout you know, schooling and, uh, you know, grew spiritually in, in a lot of ways. But if I'm honest, in hindsight, just remained uh, an immature believer in many ways. And that led to uh, a lot of uh, living that was that was inconsistent, incongruent. And so, um, you know, these habits didn't match this profession. And so when I say immature believer, uh, thinking in terms of, you know, fleeing temptation and mm -hmm. uh, fighting against sin and fighting for holy living. And so uh, that led to, um, you know, to years of, uh, like I said, a, a kind of inconsistent living, um, led to a lot of regret. Uh, in hindsight, I can see, though, just that when I was unfaithful, Christ was faithful mm -hmm. and, uh, and very, very patient with me. And, uh, and so kind of coming out of that, um, after, you know, years uh, of, of some fruitful living and some unfaithful living, uh, out of, coming out of college um, led into this season where a, a couple of things happened right about the same time. One of which was, felt like the Lord was um, uh, leading in to kind of sense his leadership in, into some sort of ministry, really uh, at that time specifically thought it was missions. And, uh, and then also about that same time, um, just... Uh, being led to deep and true repentance for this backlog of sins uh, from, from the previous years. And so um, looking back at that time, that, that season of life was such a gift as right. well as God was just so gracious and just understanding his mercy, understanding uh, his grace and being led to repent of those things. And, and so that really was this kind of spiritual milestone uh, turning point in my life that led um, to, one, just greater spiritual growth, mm -hmm. uh, but also led into, led into ministry. Right. When you think about getting past that and going on to maturity, a lot of people will talk about what was the motivation behind that. Um, I know a pastor that I listen to a lot, it always says that if Jesus is not enough to motivate you to godly living, you don't know Jesus. Was it really 
Christ and what he had done that motivated you, that, that led you to that repentance and that guided you along to maturity? Yes. Uh, the, the initial thing was um, just, um, I guess, the, the, the shame of sin. Mm-hmm. In some ways, being confronted with it, right, and really seeing sin for what it is, um, and uh, being repulsed by it, mm-hmm. and being confronted, and and really understanding for the maybe for the first time, uh, or at least um, a very in a significant way, uh, that how I'm living isn't how I am saying I am believing, mm. and yeah. that it it doesn't please God and it doesn't please. It doesn't right. please Christ, and so yes, wanting, wanting to please Christ was there, but also it was um, just being confronted with my own sin and, right. and the ugliness of it. Right. When when you had the opportunity, I mean, when you think about becoming a pastor, what led you to that? What led you to this this thought like I want to go into? I mean, you thought about missions, but then the, eventually that that call turned into a pastoral. It did, and, and it, went th- it went through missions. Right. Um, so I can remember being at North Greenville University, and I can remember Global Missions Week, and that was really significant uh, in thinking about missions. And so um, that was on, on my radar um, at that point in time. So at, at this point, I'm, I'm working at North Greenville in the athletic department, um, planning on a, a career in collegiate athletic administration right. in the brand-new graduate program at North Greenville at the time, doing a, an MBA, and, and that's kind of when all of this happened. And so I switched to the Masters of Christian Ministry um, program at North Greenville's Graduate School. And over the course of that uh, study, kind of got distracted from missions and thought, mm-hmm. well, maybe some sort of work in an established church here in the States. And um, ended up at Southeastern Seminary, even though I did the program at North Greenville, transferred a lot of those credit hours, went to Southeastern. And while I was in orientation there, Danny Aiken, the president at Southeastern, he was talking about this program called the 2 Plus 2 program. And it's where you do two years uh, of seminary work, and then you do the rest of your seminary while you're on the field with the mission board. Hmm. And he asked this question. He said, why wouldn't you give two years of your life for the sake of the nations? And I did not have an answer to that question. And it was like immediately all those original desires and motivations to move overseas for the glory of Christ among the nations returned. So I went home, talked about it with my wife. We, We prayed about it. It wasn't long after that that I switched from an expository preaching track, MDiv, to this international church planting track uh, at Southeastern and did the 2 plus 2 program. And so that led us overseas. And so after a um, short time there in Wake Forest, uh, moved to Turkey and uh, coached an American football team there wow. uh, for a couple of years, moved to a different city and had an opportunity um, to work there in Turkey and to serve Christ and to share the gospel there. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful time. Three of our four kids were born in Turkey. Wow. And uh, so uh, we were there. Things were going going really well. But um, this was 2016, 2017. Uh, my father-in-law uh, was sick with Lewy body dementia. And uh, it was starting to progress uh, more so. And so when we came back for just regular scheduled time in the States, we ended up taking a leave of absence and uh, deciding to stay uh, here in South Carolina in order to be um, close by with uh, my wife's parents in order to, to support them and, and to be with them. And so right. we originally went overseas in obedience to the scriptures, what we saw in the, in the Bible about Christ's glory among the nations and wanting to be obedient to that. Mm. When we came back also... Um, because we wanted to be obedient to the scriptures, so the fifth commandment: honor your, your your father and your mother. And uh, so when we took all the you know what we saw in the Bible about honoring your parents, and 
then we took in all the variables of our situation uh, and kind of put all that together um, and talking with uh, you know, getting wise counsel from others we thought it was best for us to stay here in the states and so that's what we did and so um, there was a little bit of a gap of time I worked a little bit of construction I was about to you know, and kind of started a small business services company um, and thinking that I'm going to try to turn that into a full-time, uh, mm-hmm. into full-time work. And right about that time that I started that, uh, I had an opportunity uh, to go on staff at Mountain Creek Baptist as an associate pastor. That was a church where we were members before we moved to seminary. Right. While we were overseas, uh, one of my really good friends from seminary, Burt Watts, became the associate and then later the senior pastor at Mountain Creek. So we were back at Mountain Creek as members and then had an opportunity to go on staff there as associate pastor. And so that's what led uh, to, to pastoral ministry. That opened up and uh, served there in 2018 uh, until about a year and a half ago when I went to First Baptist Travers Rest. Right. Um, it was a great experience at, at Mountain Creek and um, just so appreciate the people there, uh, Pastor Burt there. Um, but kind of thinking about how that transition happened from an associate role to, um, to moving to First Baptist TR, um, Part of my responsibilities at Mountain Creek, uh, so I did family ministries, missions, but also children's ministries. And uh, children's ministry tends to end up kind of taking over things. Um, And so teaching the Bible to kids, absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Love teaching the Bible to kids. Children's ministry events were not necessarily my favorite thing. And so I, I have this distinct memory of uh, spring of 2021, where um, you know it's kind of coming on the heels of of 2020, mm-hmm. and so you had uh, COVID that year. You had the, yeah. the the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the mandates and all of that. You had you know the the, the summer of mostly peaceful protests that right. summer. You had election uh, that was kind of turbulent in in the fall. So coming off of that crazy year, uh, I have this distinct memory in the spring. Of just thinking the world is burning down. I want to do something, and and I was down in the children's wing at, at Mountain Creek, stuffing two thousand one hundred plastic Easter eggs with little trinkets and pieces of candy, thinking, <laughs> "What am I doing with my life?" Right. And so, yeah. uh, and, and that's not a knock against Easter egg hunts right, or right. children's ministry events no, or I anything. Get it. Yeah, I get but it. But it was. <laughs> I, I did have this moment, and um, and and just just felt restless. Yeah. Uh, in, in some ways, and um. So anyway, so that that led to just kind of like okay, long term. What am I, you know, what am I going to be doing? Right. Um, I mentioned right. I had that uh, small business services company. I kept that as a kind of a side job um, that I would do on my days off. And so through that, there you know came just, every now and then somebody would approach me about uh, you know full time employment in, in this sector, and uh, it was appealing at times. But but in the end, I kept thinking back to. The, Specific faces of people at Mountain Creek would just kind of come into my mind. Now nah, I'm not I'm not leaving these people just for some right. other job, and um, and so so there's a there's this love for for the congregation there that really spurred me on towards pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, just loving God's God's people, and so um, what ended up happening is uh, uh, somewhere in that season. Uh, I was driving back to church for prayer meeting and happened to think, I wonder if First Baptist Travels Rest has a pastor. Now, I'd known about First Baptist Travels Rest since I was a kid. I went to pre-K there. My grandparents were longtime members at the church. Right. Knew the location was great for uh, 
you know, for ministry, Travel's Rest is booming. I don't know why that popped into my head. Uh, but I looked at their website while I was driving. Probably shouldn't have done that, but I did. I <laughs> uh, saw that there wasn't a pastor listed. And so through a few phone calls, I ended up talking to one of the deacons who said their pastor had left a couple of months earlier. Hadn't formed a search team or done anything, but he said, you know, throw your, you know, throw your resume in, a, right. in the hat. You know, send it to me. I'll, I'll put it on the stack for whenever we start doing that. So before I did that, I went and talked to Bert. And because uh, I knew, um, you know, if I was ever going to leave Mountain Creek, I wanted to do it with, with all my relationships intact. Right. Uh, he was a really good, you know, is a really good friend and uh, a lot of good friends there. And so um, I went to him and uh, he, during that time we were talking about it, uh, he, he said, you know, we've been praying since 2019. We've been praying that, you know, we'd have an opportunity at Mountain Creek to either plant a church which we probably weren't going to be in a position to do, or help a struggling church somewhere in South Carolina. And circumstances were such at First Baptist um, that it, it would qualify as a, right. as a struggling church. Right. And uh, he said, this, this very well could be an answer to our prayers. Let's pray about it. And yes, you have my blessing. Put your resume in. We'll pray. And so that was, say, September. Um, and then uh, didn't really find out anything until uh, after the start of the next year. Yeah. And uh, Mountain Creek was gracious that that following May, they allowed me to go to First Baptist and preach for four Sundays and let me get to know the church, church get to know me. And they eventually called me to to be the pastor. And uh, and Bert, he you know, stood up for Mountain Creek, said there's, you know, Travel's Rest is down to, you know, to, uh, about 35 or 40 people uh, at the church on a Sunday. They need some young families to get traction. If anybody, if any families want to go with the Burns over to First Baptist, you have our blessing. And so I thought that was incredibly generous and kind uh, right. of Burton Mountain Creek. And so uh, one family did come with us. Another lady eventually did as well. And uh, and, and Mountain Creek's been a huge help to us. Right. Uh, and so I mentioned all of that, one, just because I'm, I'm grateful. But also I think it's just such an example of one church and association helping another church and association. And so it wasn't like I was leaving there. It was like Mountain Creek was sending us out um, to do to do kingdom work in Traverse Rest. Mm-hmm. And so been there just shy of a year and a half. Yeah. And so that's a really long kind of circuitous way of answering your question of how I got into pastoral ministry. But, right. but there it is. Right. Well, that's awesome. It's great to see the cooperativeness between those churches and helping each other. And mm-hmm. that's really what the church should be doing is sending people out and for the work of ministry. And that's... Um, awesome to see that relationship and the relationship still being there. Yeah. Um, such a great testament to, you know, the um, the body of Christ really being more than just one church. It's it's, it's gathering a family Indeed. of churches. So when, when you think about um, church revitalization, which was what, you know, was going on at First Baptist mm-hmm. Traveler's Rest, uh, there's a lot of aspects of that. You know, you've been in it about 18 months or so. What has that experience been like? What is, how has that been? I mean, there's, a lot of people that have been in church revitalization, um, but you've had the opportunity to be a pastor in it and, and see it firsthand, see it in its first fruits in the, in the first year of it. How has that been? So it's been great in a lot of ways. I, I like one thing you said there, it's been 18 months, and so I hesitate to speak too much to church <laughs> revitalization. We are uh, we are not revitalized yet. Right. Uh, we are very much uh, in, in the work of it, but uh, God's been incredibly kind to us. He really has. And so uh, the people, the kind of the core, what I call the core of the church, have been there for a really long time, uh, been faithful uh, for many years. And the church, you know, stayed around because right. of this core group of faithful believers, just incredibly grateful uh, to them. And they have been so good to us. They've welcomed our family with open arms and welcomed the new members that have come in 
uh, over the course of, say, the last year with open arms. And uh, it's just been really neat to see the Lord work uh, in our congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, I believe we're growing. Uh, we're growing numerically. We've had, we've had folks join, um, but growing spiritually as well. And uh, it's, it's been a, a, just a great, you know, some of the best, you know, 18 months of my life. And right. I, I love being pastor at First Baptist Traveler's Dress and just count it as a gift. Absolutely. I mean, COVID really crushed corporate worship in a sense. Um, it, it, and I hate to say that, but unfortunately, just in many ways, it just um, really hampered corporate worship for sure. many churches. Now, I mean, we're th- a few years past that, a couple years past that. Um, at least I hope, you know, the government <laughs> seems they try to, um, it, it keeps coming back, but it's, uh, we, we seem to be past that in a different, in a different time. Uh, but the effects of it still remain. We still see the effects of it in the church today. When you think about the importance of corporate worship, especially now as we're recovering from all the craziness that happened mm-hmm. a few years ago, how important is that, the body of believers being together each Sunday um, in worshiping? Absolutely. I believe you know, worship really is central to the Christian life uh, and central to, to life. Right. And so um, you know, I think it's, it's essential and crucial that, that God's people come together and appear before God. That's what we're doing in corporate worship. Mm-hmm. We are, um, you know, spiritually ascending into the heavens, into God's presence. We are, you know, Hebrews twelve talks about, you know, scaling the heights of the heavenly Mount Zion, right. and we're entering His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Mm-hmm. Psalm one hundred, and so that that is what we are for. We are, mm-hmm. you know, we are made for worshiping God, and we are to do that together uh, weekly on the Lord's day, and so. Kind of going back to your previous question about church revitalization, kind of putting that together with worship, that was really where I wanted to focus when we started. Um, we want to be focused on the community. We want to be outwardly focused in evangelism, mm-hmm. um, but that starts with worship. And so mm-hmm. where I focused, um, kind of coming in, uh, I knew I could probably get away with like one kind of major change when I came. Right. Everybody expects the new <laughs> pastor to do something a little bit different. Right. And so uh, I spent that, that capital um, <laughs> on on our worship service, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we've we've added a lot of Bible to the service. We've, yeah, we've yeah. added a, a structure with an underlying logic uh, behind it um, that I, I hope uh, the effect is it makes our worship service more robust. Mm-hmm. We didn't change styles, you know. As far as the style of the singing, it's the same as it ever was, and what I hope it'll stay. Um, but we we've changed kind of the order of service, and and we've added a lot more Bible to it. And uh, I, I think that has been really good for our congregation. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, you know, scriptures talk about the importance of worship. You see it in, uh, in Psalms, you know, what you, you know, what you worship, you will become like. Mm. So we want to become like God. And so right. we need to worship God and, you know, and how he tells us to do it, spirit and truth, with reverence and with awe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see, you know, where... Uh, you know, I think worship is missionally important. Um, everything's downstream from it. Right. What happens in the sanctuary eventually flows out into the world, kind of mm-hmm. like the water out of the, the temple vision in, in Ezekiel. Yeah. Um, what happens in the garden, you know, goes out into the world. And uh, you see that uh, in Genesis, wherever Abraham builds altars, a lot of those same places, later Joshua wins battles. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we need to give a, a good hearty focus to... Um, to our worship together. Right. And it's very important that you're talking about adding Bible, I mean, much more Bible. The sufficiency of Scripture is extremely important also Indeed. in terms of corporate corporate worship. 
um, whether it be in the sing or also in the um, sermon itself. Um, the sufficiency of Scripture flow from from that flows out all of these things about what we know about God and then how we act in the world. Uh, would you say that that is also a, a big focus of yours is the sufficiency of Scripture in your worship service? Absolutely. We we want we want our people to hear God's word. Like we, mm-hmm. yeah. we're appearing before God not primarily for us to speak to God, but for Him to speak to us. Mm-hmm. And so we want there to be a lot of Scripture. And so we hear Scripture in the call to worship. We hear Scripture when we confess our sins and are assured of our forgiveness in, uh, in Christ. We hear Scripture when we sing. We hear Scripture when we, you know, during the pastoral prayer, during the sermon, at the benediction. So we have it all throughout the service uh, so we can hear from God. And then and then we respond to God. Right. Uh, right. You know, in thanksgiving and in praise and offering up, um, you know, worship uh, and praise to Him. Right. And so, and so we want to hear from that because His Word is, is sufficient for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we know how to live because of it. Um, it's authoritative for us. Right. And so hearing, hearing that, it, we are formed um, by the Word. The Word does, uh, I believe in the power of the Word to shape Christians mm-hmm. and to conform them into the image of God's Son, Jesus. Right. It seems that, especially when churches are healthy and the corporate worship is healthy, sometimes what you see is that evangelism and outreach takes care of itself oftentimes. Um, not to put down outreach and evangelism as things that should be in the church budget, certainly as things that sure. churches should do. But when churches are healthy, when churches are people, each person in the church is growing in their knowledge of God, growing in their holiness, sometimes you find that much of the evangelism takes place personally with um, each of those persons in their individual lives. And the outreach, oftentimes, with the graciousness of those people, takes care of itself. So is that something you found to be true? I hope that's what we're seeing. I think we're in we're in the process of that of that formation. But I think you're exactly right. What is uh, what's on the inside comes out, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we want to be formed by God's word, uh, be filled with God's spirit, so that when we're out in the world, uh, you know, that's what comes out is God's word, and God's word is our primary tool in evangelism. So right. um, that is. That's the thought behind it, and that's what we, that's what we hope to happen, and uh, and look forward to seeing how the Lord uses um, spiritual formation from our worship out in the world. Right, and we can use that to transition to a topic that I know we want to talk about. Um, we are probably still getting used to the fact that we are in a negative world where Christianity sees, where people see Christianity in a negative sense. Um, you referenced an article that I really enjoyed reading that that you spoke about, where there's a three worlds model. Mm-hmm. Um, for quite some time in much of American history, Christianity was seen in a positive sense. Um, and there was some time not too far back that it was seen in a neutral sense, but we're kind of seeing for the first time, a lot of people are still getting used to the fact that it's seen in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. And Christianity is seen as a net negative by most people, especially with the rise of people that have no affiliation with religion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the nuns, that they call them. Yeah. And they, they don't have any type of affiliation at all. When we think about that, when we think about um, what we're up against, how you kind of flesh out the world we're living in now, and then we'll talk about some ways where we can try to, some strategies the church can use. I think it'd be helpful maybe um, just kind of give a summary of that positive, neutral, negative world. Mm -hmm. Um, So Aaron Wren wrote an article, uh, it was published at First Things, Uh, he had uh, maybe, I don't know, two years ago, he put it out a couple years, maybe a year or so before that in his newsletter. And basically, it's a three worlds model, mm-hmm. uh, and so kind of from the end of World War II up until about the Clinton administration, uh, you, 
Christianity was seen positively by the culture. And so this model is you know, Christianity's relationship with kind of the larger culture. And so it was socially advantageous to be a Christian right. during that time, right? right. Um, it was professionally advantageous. If you, if you were an insurance salesman, you needed to, you know, to be at church, right. it would help your, you know, it, right. it'd help your business. Uh, if you want to be a, a citizen in good standing, you know, you're a part of church. Um, and so it was positive. And then somewhere around the Clinton administration till, uh, you know, towards the end of the Obama administration, this neutral world where Christianity is just another lifestyle mm-hmm. among uh, many lifestyles. So some people are hikers. Some people like to hunt and fish. Some people are, you know, they're into art, and some people are Christians, and they like to go to church on Sunday. Right. Just another lifestyle mm. choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then somewhere, I would probably put it with uh, the Obergefell decision. Mm. We entered into negative world where right. it is socially and professionally disadvantageous to be a Christian uh, and to be vocally a Christian part of a church. It doesn't gain you anything. There's a, it's not just that you know it's Christian over there and that that's kind of okay, but. Christian that is viewed negatively. Right. And, and that uh, shift has happened over seventy years. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's quick. Been, it's, it's been heading that way. Right. And and it's probably more pronounced in uh, you know, blue cities, blue states, uh, places like that. Right. More so than it is here. I think we're seeing it develop here. We're kind of moving from neutral world to negative world right. here in the upstate. But what we see larger culturally in our country is we've entered negative world. Definitely. And so Definitely. I think that model is helpful for giving some language to what we're experiencing. And for understanding where we are, and so um, it's been really helpful for me just to kind of frame things for our congregation in mm-hmm. those terms, but also for me to think through: okay, pastorally, how do I, you know, how do how do I lead our church mm-hmm. when we're in or emerging into negative world? Right. Um, one of the shifts that happens when we go from that I read in the article from a positive to negative uh, to a neutral world, more rather. When we were in the neutral world, there were strategies within the church to fix this or to get it back to positive. Um, I would argue, I think many would maybe agree, that some of those strategies actually led to negative uh, or at least didn't do us any favors. The seeker-sensitive movement maybe being the best example of that. Uh, what we're kind of, how do we get where we are today? What, I mean, obviously the decision in terms of gay marriage, I mean, all the discussion over abortion, those type of things have not... Um, have had major impacts on how um, Christianity is viewed in the culture, but how do we get to where we are today in the past 20, 30 years? Probably a bigger question than we can answer on this podcast. (laughs) The first thing that comes to my mind, though, kind of goes back to something we were talking about just a few moments ago, and that is everything's downstream from worship. And Mm -hmm. so if we have a culture problem, we probably have a worship problem. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to blame everything you know, lay everything at the feet of, of the Christian church and say it's because of our poor worship practices or lack thereof or whatever it is. I do right. think that that's part of it. We need that. We need to, right. you know, judgment starts at the house of the Lord. We need to um, ask those questions. Have we been faithful mm. in our worship and obedience um, to the Holy God? Uh, but also we see just culturally, you know, worship's inescapable. Mm-hmm. Worship is, uh, you know, it's not one of those neutral things. It's not like somebody's going to opt out of worship. They're going to worship something. Right. Uh, either you're going to worship the one true and living God, or you're going to worship a false God right. of some sort, Absolutely. in some fashion. Yeah. And so culturally, uh, our people have given themselves over to false gods and idols. Mm-hmm. And so what you have downstream from that is chaos. Because mm-hmm. the choice really is always Christ or chaos. Mm-hmm. Because Colossians 1, in him all things consist, all things hold together. 
And so if you reject Christ, you're going to end up with chaos. And so I think just kind of large scale, we've, uh, we've attempted uh, to reject Christ. And it's led, it's led to all sorts of chaos. Right. Um, and I do think that is downstream from, uh, from the worship, uh, kind of broadly speaking, of our culture. But I do think there's, you right. know, the Christian church, we need to uh, evaluate, um, you know, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And because uh, what happens in the sanctuary eventually flows out into the culture. Mm. And so we, we, need to, we need to trace those things as well. Right. And going back to what you were saying about um, chaos, when the decision was being made on gay marriage, the Supreme Court decision, um, it was the it were the Christians that were saying as loud as they could, at least many of the faithful Christians were saying as loud as they could, this will lead to a slippery slope, mm-hmm. right? If we allow gay marriage, it will be cut. This it will not stop here. Um, it's it's wrong enough here, but it will get worse, and it will eventually divulge into chaos. Mm-hmm. That's what we've seen um, in the exact thing that has happened. Um, so, so certainly, I mean, that's that's what we see in our culture. When we think about the church itself. Uh, I, I would, argue, I mean, in Christianity, there's so, especially in American Christianity, there's so easy to have idols. It's so easy to go to church on Sunday and still have all these things that we have in our world. All these, you know, have status, have money, have possessions. Um, do you believe maybe the message, you know, kind of? Going against the seek, I would I might would argue maybe against going against the secret sense of the movement. Going against that, maybe something would be that the message changes a little bit. The message changes to how you know Jesus um, evangelized to Nicodemus, and that the message might be it, you need to forsake everything to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think you know the message always needs to be uh, just white hot gospel to mm-hmm. people, right. and uh, and it also needs to be. Uh, following that uh, needs to be obedience to Christ, and and we don't want to um, adapt the message so much in a consumeristic kind of mindset right. um, that we've seen in years past. Uh, we don't want to do that uh, because then you end up with a bunch of consumers, and you know when the the consumer demand changes, so does everything else. And I think we've sure. seen that in, in our culture, definitely. Um, definitely. But yeah, so we need to be preaching repentance uh, from sin, turning from you know turning from those idols, turning from those things that we set up in place of God uh, that have our affections and, uh, and, and just, you know, just robust teaching of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, the article talks about how in this negative world now, the church is searching for answers and we're still kind of scrambling because this is new to us. Um, when you think about the strategy that you would propose or strategies that have been proposed out there, where do you where do you see what do you see the church how does the church need what do they need to be doing what is the strategy what should the strategy be in this next sure. world I think uh, I think the first thing Christians need to do and especially pastors need to do is to be aware that we're living in negative world mm-hmm. right uh, the the number of people who uh, kind of think everything is fine or at least mm. uh, continuing on as if everything is fine it really is amazing to me um, and so I think people need to know. Uh, it's kind of become cliche, but I think it's true. Need to know what time it is. Mm-hmm. Need to be able to look at the cultural watch and know mm-hmm. where we are. Uh, that things aren't well, and that's not to be doom and gloom about it. It's just to be realistic. And so we need to be sons of Iskar who are able to discern the times. And so that's the first thing is just recognizing where we are. And that's why I think Ren's article is uh, so helpful because it gives us a framework for understanding. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is. Uh, Christians and pastors need to be able to to say plain truths plainly. 
Um, and, and by that I mean we need to be able to speak in, and tell the truth about things. Things that people knew to be true, all of us knew to be true up until about 15 minutes ago culturally. Right. And to say those right. without hemming and hawing and uh, qualifications and caveats and, right. and all of those things uh, and just say them plainly because people need truth. People need to hear uh, what is true from the scriptures. They need mm. to hear um, those things, and they need to hear them clear. We need to sound a clear note uh, to our people so that they are um, reminded of things that are true, so that they're filled with courage and can go out and, and live accordingly in the world. And so that's another thing is I think um, you know pastors especially need to uh, recognize the pressures mm. that are on yeah. their people. They yeah. need to recognize what, you know, pastors can be somewhat insulated sometimes because uh, we're around Christians all the time. We're at our office, we're in our study, you know, right. um, we're visiting with, you know, other, other, other believers yeah. and can, and maybe not quite grasp the, the pressures that are on our people that are out in corporate jobs with, you know, um, the DEI uh, heavy HR departments and all of that. And so we need to understand that and uh, to let our people know, hey, we're on your side. Right. You know, uh, yeah, so definitely. I think about last June. You know, so-called Pride Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of our guys that uh, that work in some larger companies and uh, just send them a text message. Said, "Hey, I know this month is probably kind of crazy for you. Um, there's stuff. You know, one of them, uh, their company did a Pride flag raising ceremony on the first day of June. Wow. And uh, mm. you know, and, and just I know this is kind of tough. I just want you to know, I'm praying for you, and I got your back. Mm-hmm. Praying for you, I'm on your side. And I, I think, I think." Uh, our congregations, our people need to hear that from the pastors, right. um, that they they have some awareness uh, of what's going on and and to know that I'm praying specifically for you in these pressures. Mm. There's pressures for you to, you know, to get the pinch of incense. And uh, I'm praying for you to be courageous. I'm praying for you to be strong. I'm praying for you to endure. Um, so I think people need that kind of, um, you know, congregational care. Um, I, think, I think churches need to realize that uh, you can't you can't escape politics when everything is political. Mm-hmm. It's one of the uh, one of the things about our culture right now is just the totalization of politics. Mm-hmm. And so when maple syrup uh, is political and Skittles are political, right. everything is political. And so you don't have the luxury of of not talking about politics mm-hmm. because everything is is touched in some way. Yes. And so you can't just opt out of it. And I don't mean you preach the headlines, and I don't mean you preach right. whatever's trending on Twitter that week, and and make every Every sermon, a cultural war sermon. Uh, no, we preach the Bible. Then we apply all the Bible to all of life. Mm-hmm. We want to take everything that this book says, and we want to apply it everywhere right. out there in the world. Uh, and when we do that, we're going to touch on some some hot button issues, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. need to be courageous enough to do so. And we need to apply the Bible rightly to those things, so that our people are equipped to be salt and light out there. Mm-hmm. So that our people are reminded of. Christ's love, of Christ's power, so that they know how to love Christ, obey Christ, and serve Christ in whatever domain that they're in. Some of our people are retired, some are in school, some are in the workforce, wherever they are, um, that in this environment that they can love and serve and obey Christ well. Um, because if we're not teaching those things, right. somebody is. That's right. We're gonna get discipled somewhere. That's right. And so uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, to use the internet slang, a bunch of red-pilled young men, Christians, and they're going to go somewhere where mm-hmm. somebody's going to tell them the truth 
particularly about issues of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to tell them uh, the truth on those issues. That's the hot button kind of the issue of the day. And uh, if it's not, you know, I would prefer it to be their pastor who knows them, loves them, loves the Bible. Right. Uh, right. But, but if they're not getting, you know, all the Bible for all of life, including these, these issues, mm-hmm. they're going to go get it from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and some of those places they're getting it aren't very good. Uh, oh, they're, they're not excellent. believing. Yeah. And then I think there's just a missional opportunity there because to use that same term, there's a bunch of red-pilled, unbelieving men out mm-hmm. there who are open to the gospel if uh, we'll go give it to them and, right. and, and tell it right. to them straight and uh, and not in a in kind of a, a soft evangelical way, but mm. with yeah. you know Christian strength. And so I think there's some there's some opportunities there as well. Right. I mean. Oftentimes, I think I think especially at this point in the at this point in the culture, there are a lot of people out there where there is no truth. Everything's relative. That there are people out there, like you said, red pill young men that want truth and they are searching for it, and um, they're searching for people that are concrete in that. They're not going to back down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they go in um, some interesting areas for that uh, that are not Christian, non Christian yeah. sources. Like Andrew Tate's probably an example of someone who's very popular, who's, mm-hmm. who's a bad example, maybe. Um, but, I mean, I think about oftentimes Justin Peters, um, who I haven't watched a lot, talks about this, that the most loving thing we can do is tell people the truth. I know oftentimes I do this, and I know there's other people that feel this way, when someone, a pastor or someone that's a Christian, stands up for the truth, but then adds qualifications to it and adds all these things additionally on to make it sound like they're not being unlo- unloving, that they're trying to be loving, but they have to uh, kind of defend it that there's kind of a step, I kind of step back and say, I don't really, I mean, I, I would rather you just, hey, this is the truth, and this is, I'm saying it because I love you, but the the definition of love in our culture has changed, um, and it seems that everything is a battle for the dictionary in our culture. Indeed. Um, I mean, and I, I love what you said about the encouragement. What is oftentimes, I imagine sometimes that as a pastor, you have to, pretty much encourage your culture to, or your church to go out into the culture. And a lot of it's just re-educating them on what words mean, right? I mean, because a lot of things that they might be saying might be the same language church members use, but they mean a totally different thing. Sure. Progressive church being a good example yeah. of that. I think love is a great example there. So, you know, what what is love? Like, well, if you take the culture's uh, definition, it's, it's probably something having to do with emotions and right. uh, solely uh, and affirmation. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's affirming Basically, whatever, uh, no contradictions to yeah. one's self-identity or, yeah. or wishes or desires. Um, whereas I think a better definition of love is, is, is acting for someone's good as God defines that good. Mm-hmm. So acting for their true good, uh, even, if it, you know, even if it costs you something. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and so that battle for the dictionary there, if we're going yeah, to love our neighbor, well, we need, everything depends on what you mean by love. Mm-hmm. So if it means affirming everything, then you're going to act one way. If it means securing their true good as God defines it, it's going to mean something else. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and to do that, it's probably going to cost you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus, the greatest example of love, it cost him his life. Right. And so we're to follow Christ and we're to emulate Christ and imitate Christ. And so we need to, to do that. Um, and so we do need to make sure we're defining things as God does. Mm-hmm. And again, Definitely. that goes back to the scriptures, to the sufficiency and authority of the scriptures. Right. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus and his um, compassion. We think about the story of him, you know, with the children coming to him. And we oftentimes forget that 
Jesus showed love in a similar way when he told people that they were sinners. And then many of them, especially the religious hypocrites of his day, the Jewish hypocrites, would try to stone him when he told them they were hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Um, we, when we go into our culture, we cannot avoid telling people that they're sinners. And I think sometimes it's seeker-sensitive movement and the feel-good gospel can make us present a gospel that's not really a gospel. It's a gospel where people can keep their own worldly desires and also get Jesus too. And yeah. in reality, they lose both. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that means we need to go be jerks to everybody. Right. 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 Um, definitely. But, no. but I think, again, speaking plainly mm-hmm. um, is such a gift. It is such a gift to, to have someone speak truth to you plainly mm-hmm. um, because the truth cuts and we need to be cut sometimes. Right. Um, but the gospel heals mm-hmm. and the gospel stops that bleeding. The gospel heals those cuts uh, and makes us, and makes us new again. Uh, and it would not be loving to withhold that from somebody, mm-hmm. to let somebody stay in their sin, right. let somebody stay in that thing which is poisoning their life and killing them slowly. Right. To let them stay in that um, would that's that's not securing their good at all. Right. Um, that's it's, it's not loving. And so, no, don't be a jerk about everything. And and uh, but also be willing to have an uncomfortable conversation. Be willing mm-hmm. to be direct. Um, with kindness, but um, but be willing to, to say what's true plainly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, another point you made, which you know, kind of bringing this to a positive note, is uh, encouraging your church, your flock, encouraging yeah. our church members. And it's easy for church members to get negative um, about the negative world we're in, to yeah. to be discouraged, um, to wonder what you know, what am I going to do? I mean, my kids are going to be you know growing up. Um, in a world where you know half the people are a different, or a fourth of people are a different sexuality, they don't—they're scared. They don't know what to do. They're discouraged, and there's an—it's very easy to be despaired about that. Yeah. Um, but that's not what Bible calls us to do. We have a future hope. Um, how should Christians be hopeful and not be dis, um, just frightened in this time? I remember uh, October of 2020. So again, just in the middle of this—that crazy year. Right. Being at a conference, and that topic came up. And the pastor was speaking. Um, he said, you know, he was encouraging there's a ton of young families, ton of kids at this conference. And he was saying, you know, don't despair. You know, your kids were born for the problems of 2040. Hmm. He said, it would be a shame to raise a generation of dragon slayers and have no dragons to fight. Right. And uh, I remember hearing that and just being kind of emboldened, like, no, this my kids are going to be okay. They, you know, right? They are, you know, they're trusting. They'll trust in Christ, be filled with His Spirit. They'll be ready for whatever comes. And so I think Christians, not just about their kids, but you know, just for all of us, just being reminded of uh, of Christ's victory. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus rose from the dead, and that changed everything. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. And uh, you know, he he must reign until every enemy is defeated. First Corinthians fifteen. And you know, then he comes in, he gives the kingdom to the Father. And so um, we need to believe what the Bible says, mm-hmm. that, that Christ reigns, that, that he's not going to be king someday in the future. He's king now. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he received glory and a kingdom and dominion that you know, so that all peoples, nations, and, and languages should, should serve him. And that you know, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill uh, and cover the earth as the, as the waters cover the sea. And uh, we need to be reminded of Christ's victory. We need to be reminded of the Spirit's power. And uh, and not despair and be filled with hope because um, 
G.K. Chesterton, you know, said that Christianity has died many times, but it follows a God who knows his way out of the grave. Mm. And so we might be somewhat in the grave, you know, metaphorically speaking, but Jesus knows the way out of the grave. Let's follow Christ there right. and be filled with hope. And so, so what do we do? Going back to your earlier question, what do we do in a negative world? Um, you know, I think we need to give ourselves joyfully to, to the kind of basic things of the faith mm. uh, that, that form us. And so we need yeah. to give ourselves to, uh, to weekly Lord's Day worship. Mm. We need to give ourselves towards uh, healthy families, you know, praying with and leading our families in, in family worship and teaching our kids um, and, and discipling them. We need to give ourselves, um, you know, we need to be confessing our sins regularly and, and receiving Christ's mercy. We need to be, uh, one of the things kind of on this hopeful note that I think about is uh, there's been something of a recovery of, of, of singing uh, in mm. circles that I run in in recent yeah. years, particularly psalm singing and robust hymn singing. And uh, so this morning um, I was down, uh, uh, there's abortion clinic here in Greenville, and there's a group that every second Friday um, gather out there outside of that abortion clinic, uh, not to protest, um, not to engage with the pro-abortion protesters that are there, not to try to stop any cars. There's other people that are doing that. Not, you know, there's other people that are preaching. Right. Um, they're just to sing. Um, and, and to sing psalms and hymns um, as prayers that God might hear uh, our pleas and save preborn life in Greenville by shutting that place down. And so the, the model there is Jericho. What did the Israelites do? You know, they marched around and sang and the walls came down. Mm-hmm. Or I think about Second uh, Chronicles 20. You have Jehoshaphat and he uh, leads a worship service and then they go out to, they're going out to fight the enemies uh, of Israel and uh, what does Jehoshaphat do? He sends the choir out before the army. And when they start singing um, about the Lord's mercy, when they start singing about his steadfast love, Second uh, Chronicles 20 says, the Lord set an ambush right. and, uh, and their enemies were defeated. And so I think there's, there's some power there. So I, I think that's one strategy um, for Christians is to recover the power of singing. And, right. and so that goes in with the hope and the joy because you can't sing God's songbook uh, and not be filled with joy. Um, mm. Sing about the greatness of God. To not be filled with courage um, as you sing about God's victory over his enemies. And so I think those are some of the strategies that we can employ. But I, I cannot um, uh, overstate uh, the case of how much I think Christians just need encouragement in right. these days. Through right. all of these different means. Uh, and to be reminded of the power of Christ, the rulership, the kingship of Christ. And that whatever that whatever it is that we're facing, um, you know, we are going to be victorious over it because we are in Christ, and it is our faith that overcomes the world. And to not give up, and to right. not be bullied into despair, um, you know, that's the that's the point of yeah. of a lot of what we're facing. Oh, yeah. Trying to get God's people to despair. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you think of propaganda, right? Yeah. The point of propaganda isn't to persuade you. Right. Everybody knows it's a lie. Um, the point is to demoralize you. Mm-hmm. But we're Christians. We, we can't be demoralized. Right. Jesus rose from the dead. Right. Uh, we have been made new. We have the Spirit of God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We have peace with God through Christ. We can't be demoralized. We mm-hmm. need to make sure we live like it. That's right. Um, yeah, amen. And, and um, I think that that's extremely encouraging to, to every believer. And, and that comes, you know, like you said um, earlier, um, being in the worship service each and every week and growing in that. And 
I think sometimes people think they need some extraordinary solution, um, but we are going into a day where there will be nothing more extraordinary than a man that loves Christ and is is leading a family that loves Christ and being simple a obedience, right. simple obedience, regular habits, pray, read your Bible a lot, right, worship with God's people, go work hard every day, whatever. God's given you to do, put your hand to the plow. Like that's the Christian life. Absolutely. Oftentimes we, we make it much more complicated yeah. than it actually yeah. is. Um, and if, if if I'm correct, and I could be wrong, it might be the wrong place, but I believe that abortion clinic, there is a possibility it will be shut down from what I've seen. Is, so, is that correct? So there was a councilman, uh, Stan, I'm not going to try to say his last name because I, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, but there is a councilman uh, who put forth this past week a uh, a resolution to revoke the business license of that abortion clinic um, based on it being a nuisance business because mm-hmm. the police have been called out there just an untold number of times. It's like, I don't know, over 300 times in the last year. Um, I spent two and a half years going out there every Monday and preaching the gospel outside of that clinic. And I've uh, just seen some craziness and seen why the police get called so many times. Right, and so right. there is a a, uh, a resolution. I think it was referred to a committee. I don't really know the process of what that's going to look like. Yeah. Over um, by the time this uh, podcast comes comes out, it very well may have died in a committee or been brought out of committee. I'm not sure, Um, but there is that possibility, and so we'd ask uh, for folks in Greenville County to be praying um, that that we can shut that place down. And I'd also encourage just churches. There's an organization here um, in the Upstate, I mean, all over the place, but there's a local chapter here in Greenville called Love Life. And so I would encourage uh, churches who want to get involved in some way, they're looking for 40 churches to commit to a week where um, you know, you're praying uh, specifically about abortion and then go out and do a prayer walk outside the abortion clinic on a Saturday morning. Pretty low commitment, um, but pretty, like, for such a low commitment, there, there's high, um, you know, return on, yeah. on, on yeah, that. And so absolutely. I would encourage people to, to um, get in contact with Love Life Greenville and uh, that's kind of the, the church side of, of this work of getting you know people praying and, and mobilizing that way. There's another organization called Equal Protection South Carolina um, that is more engaged on the political front. And so things like this with county council, particularly things, uh, bills in the, uh, the South Carolina legislature, uh, Equal Protection South Carolina is another organization people can get connected with on how you can be kind of involved in the grassroots politics of mm. ending abortion in our state. So I'd just love for people to get in contact with them. Right, certainly. We'll put links in the description for both of those um, sites. I believe there's, there's, I'm sure there's websites for, for both of yeah. them. And um, continue to be thankful for those groups. And um, key to pray that that abortion clinic will get shut down. Of course, we are filming this in early December. So, I mean, by the time this comes out, I don't know what the situation is going to be. Yeah. But we continue to pray for that situation, Indeed. certainly. In uh, transitioning to our final topic that we'll talk about um, that uh, is – really why um, pastors, even pastors of normal size small or smaller size churches, should be interested in denominational life, should be interested in what's going on at large in our denomination um, as a Southern Baptist, and you know why that is important to, to, to think about and be involved in and be prayerful about. Uh, and I'll just let you take it away and, and why that is, you believe. You know, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is, uh, we want to be good stewards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so our context, our context being Southern Baptist, you know, uh, since what 1845, right. uh, Southern Baptist Convention uh, has been, um, you know, cooperating for the sake of the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And over those many years, our fathers and mothers in the faith 
have built something very significant. Right. Um, a significant institution for kind of collection of institutions. When you think of, you know, the seminaries and different entities, mission boards and such. And uh, there's a ton of resources there mm-hmm. and a ton of influence there. Right. And I think we want to, one, honor our fathers and mothers in the faith. Um, by being good stewards of that, not squandering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the thing about institutions is they have to always be maintained and defended because mm-hmm. there's always going to be attacks on anything that's faithful. Right. And so um, because of that, uh, I think, you know, uh, pastors, um, particularly of, of kind of this normal-sized churches, need to be involved because we don't want it, you know, we don't want to be the generation. No generation wants to be the one that, you know, the SBC went mainline on or whatever denomination someone's part of um, where, thing, where, where the train went off the track. Right. And so we need to stay engaged in order to be a good steward. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the first thing I would say there. And then the second thing is, just kind of piggybacking on that, is the fact that institutions matter. Yes. Um, yeah. One, because they're hard to build and they take time. <laughs> uh, yeah. They have a certain momentum to them, a certain heft to them. And so I, I, the Southern Baptist Convention is, um, you know, has the capacity to do an enormous amount of good because mm-hmm. we have an enormous amount of resources and we have history behind us and, and knowledge of how to do those things. And, and, and the SBC is culturally and politically significant uh, as well. It's significant enough um, that you know, bad guys try to subvert it. Right. So that mean, I think it, that means that it, it's significant enough that good guys ought to try to defend it. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens a lot of times, though, is... Uh, People just kind of, you know, the, the denominations run on autopilot. Right. And you know, we give our money, we give it to cooperative program, we don't think another thing about it. And, you know, right. Some of that, you know, people have their head in the sand. Some of that is, uh, you know, a really good, you know, motivation, uh, just maybe a click or two off, which is, you know, I'm going to give my focus and my energy to where I am, my church, where I have some, you know, where I have influence. Right. And I think that's the right, I mean, that's the institution. Talk about institutions. That's the institution that matters. The church. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, that's right. And so uh, it's a right motivation uh, to. I'm going to focus on my my church. Mm. Where I'd say it's a click or two off is part of your church has to do with the denomination. Though, if you're involved, if you're giving money, uh, or you're sending missionaries, or you're whatever it is, um, you're in, you're involved. And so it is. It is connected to your church mm. in such a way that I think it warrants at least some engagement and attention. Mm-hmm. Because it matters. Um, because if if we're just unaware of the problems or potential problem, whatever it is, if we're unaware of what's going on, it allows problems to perpetuate, right? Um, and, and and grow. And once they they grow and get some roots in there, it really is hard to to turn that back. Now, the great thing about the Southern Baptist Convention is our polity allows uh, for a turning. So we saw that back in the seventies you know, and eighties with the conservative resurgence, um, battle for the Bible. And mm-hmm. because normal-sized church pastors turned out in droves, uh, was able to turn the convention back uh, and didn't go mainline like so many other denominations did. Um, of course, I guess now is appropriate time to say that Southern Baptist Convention isn't technically a denomination in the same ways as other ones are. It's right. a missions partnership yes, of churches. Yes, yes. But still, um, it is the institution there uh, or the, the, the collection of churches there and was able to turn things with our seminaries particularly back mm-hmm. um, and so because that opportunity is there and the opportunity to do so much good is there I think 
pastors ought to be engaged in in doing that as a way to be a good steward. Right, absolutely. I mean, I, I wasn't um, alive during the conservative resurgence, but I've listened to enough wise men that have told me um, that it was small churches yep. um, that came out that um, were the front runners and, and the biggest reason why the inerrancy debate ended up going towards a conservative movement or to, yeah. as opposed to a liberal movement, which would have been the end of our denomination yeah. as we know it. Um, same thing when you had issues with old earth and, 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 and plenty of those things um, that were that were problems. I mean, that it was the conservatives that were a big part of that and, and that fixed that um, in many ways. And we and we find ourselves in a time where that uh, in many cases needs to, I, I believe, happen um, again. And, and so the issues are different. Issue, yeah, the issues are different. Definitely, um, but we still have still some issues, and, and there might be a lot of pastors that um, want to avoid that because some of them are controversial. Um, actually, they all are, but and they're not all theological. Some are theological. Um, the egalitarianism issue is very much theological. Some are more um, cultural engagement. How do we engage in the culture? Um, Southern Baptist Conventions, the leadership still trying to figure that one out, and also financial. So there's there's a lot of issues, uh, and, and I know you've you've dealt with. With, with these, um, but as a, as a small church pastor, we still there there are still small churches have an impact on on, how, on these decisions and the future of the denomination and that in those instances. Absolutely, and so I would agree with you. So I think kind of just looking at history, uh, won the battle for the Bible, and over the uh, intervening years, I think we've somewhat lost the peace um, right. because we're, we're kind of back where we need right. uh, another conservative resurgence mm-hmm. in my estimation. Now, some of the issues are different. Some of them the same. I mean, egalitarian was a, was a live issue then. Right. Now it's a, it's a big live issue mm-hmm. again. And so, uh, so my encouragement would be for normal sized pastors, find a way to get to Indianapolis and vote for the law amendment mm-hmm. uh, in order to kind of turn back some of this egalitarianism that really has uh, infiltrated into, uh, into our convention of churches. And through, and the reason that matters is, uh, is because then it goes, you know, from the churches it goes into, uh, you know, who we send out as missionaries. We don't want to be exporting that type of stuff. Uh, right, exactly. Again, we want to hold to the Bible. Now's the time to hold fast to the Bible. And so, yeah, there, there's there's a number of issues. You mentioned egalitarianism. I think maybe where you're going on kind of culturally or sociologically, um, what we saw going back several years just kind of with, um, you know, how to go about, Issues that concern race, and right? Certainly, theory, and I should be more theory, specific. Those, yes, those that's what I was things, looking at. Um, like those are problems, and, and and I think one thing that's just worth saying on that because um, the that type of stuff has quieted down mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it was raging hot. I remember writing an article in 2017: uh, "Shall the critical race theorists win?" Uh, and because you kind of saw all this stuff going that's a couple of years before Resolution Nine, then you saw that. And then everything over 2020. And then it kind of, everything, you know, we followed the culture into that. Mm-hmm. And we followed the culture in quieting down about it when we should have been leading the culture. Uh, because Jesus tells us to disciple the nations. We should have been the ones teaching. Instead, I think so So much of it, we got a baptized version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so things have quieted down, but there hasn't been repentance. No. And mm-hmm. I think that's the... Uh, that's the issue right now as it relates to those type of things. We need repentance from people who peddled this or who enabled it mm-hmm. rather than um, just kind of the typical just hush and move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there are things uh, that normal church pastors can get behind. Um, two practical issues right now that I would suggest. There's uh, one I mentioned a moment ago, the law amendment, which is uh, about um, putting it into our bylaws uh 
to that only men qualified by scripture can be pastors. Mm -hmm. And there are documented cases of, I can't remember what the number was, 1,600 or something churches with women pastors uh, of some sort um, that uh, came out in an American Reformer article uh, last year. And just showing the, you know, it's been shown about the, the churches that North American Mission Board were planting that had women pastors, uh, partnering with churches that have women pastors for training and, and training sites and things like that that NAM was doing. And so it, it's a live issue. Right. And we put it into our bylaws about um, not, you know, not considering churches that engage in racism or sexual abuse, cover-ups and things like that. We put that into our bylaws that that, that, that would mean those churches are not in friendly cooperation. And uh, the law amendment would, would put, you know, uh, egalitarian churches in in the bylaws as well. Um, I'm assuming there's some workarounds uh, against the law <laughs> amendment that are being considered yeah, uh, at yeah. the moment, but I think this is one issue where uh, uh, normal-sized church pastors uh, can turn out with messengers from their churches mm -hmm. and go to Indianapolis, and you can do something really significant, not just for now, but for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Right. Um, and the world that they're going to grow up in, because what happens, any any church denomination that in that caves on egalitarianism ends up, and this isn't a slippery slope fallacy, it's just, you know, what you reap what you sow. Um, and leaven leavens, and, and what happens, you end up compromising on sexuality in, in many other ways as well. Right. And so it really is a significant issue and so some and people would say i think that's sorry if you no, don't, go ahead, go ahead. i think that's the that and that might be the biggest point and um as, as someone who's not a pastor but i, I would just say and I, this from what i've heard from people like like yourself and other people saying in the, in the conservative movement that the issue here um like with critical race um back a few years ago egalitarianism now the race i mean the the issue is egalitarianism but it's also bigger than that because what we have is the sufficiency of scripture at risk when we use non when we use methods outside the scripture to answer race-related questions and how we deal with race in the in the convention, how we deal with critical race theory, how we deal with sexual abuse, when we use things outside the scripture to answer what a pastor can be, that's what's at stake. So it's it's also it's it's a huge issue because it's not just egalitarianism; it's the entire Bible. It's not just how we second, view the Bible. third order issues, right? Uh, it the root really is that first order issue of the scriptures. And right. it's, it all goes back to the garden. Did, you know, did God really say? Yeah. You know, it's the temptation as old as yeah. the earth. You yeah. know, it goes back to the garden. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a major implication issue. Absolutely. For sure. yeah. and, and, and and so with that, I would say, so I heard a, uh, read a metaphor one time for this that I think so apt is that the second crime scene is always worse than the first crime scene. Mm -hmm. And so if you, uh, you know, if a white man pulls up and starts to kidnap you on the street, uh, that's a that's a bad crime scene. Right. Um, but you can rest assured that wherever they, whatever abandoned warehouse they take you to is mm. going to be a lot worse, whatever they do to you there. And so you better pitch a really big fit and try to get away on the sidewalk yeah. because the second crime scene is worse than the first. And so some people might say, what, what, what's a big deal about, you know, this, you know, she's not functioning as a pastor. We're just calling her children's pastor or whatever it is. Um, what the big deal is you're, you're giving a title that scripture says is only for qualified men. Mm -hmm. Um, and the the second crime scene that's going to follow from that is going to be a whole lot worse. Right. And so, right. Um, yeah. you did a lot better job for, of articulating that. Than so I was for doing. the for the sake of faithfulness, <laughs> yeah. In generations to come, you need to stop bleeding early. Yeah. Just be faithful where you are. So the law amendment right. would be one. Um, and then the other that I would encourage people uh, is um, 
you know, Louisville, and it, we have an opportunity to vote on it. But in New Orleans, um, uh, had an opportunity to make a motion asking for financial transparency among our entities, um, specifically asking that we would amend our business and financial plans so that our you know, Southern Baptist entities would be required to disclose uh, what's called 4990 level financial information. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, nonprofits are required with, by the IRS to file what's called a, a 990. It's kind of bare minimum industry standard for nonprofits of the information that the government says your donors ought to know about this. Right. And so they have to file that. Um, religious organizations do not. I support that. I don't want our entities having to file to the government. But I do uh, want our entities to disclose that same level of information to Southern Baptist churches. Um, we can do this in a way that doesn't compromise any of our overseas personnel and would get us back to bare minimum industry standards. Because right now, Planned Parenthood has more financial transparency than any of our Southern Baptist entities. Um, and, and so this is, I think, one of those issues that uh, it ought to be a no-brainer. Like who right. wants to be against transparency? Who wants financial obscurity instead? But for several conventions in a row, I don't know, like maybe the last five or so years, maybe more, um, there's been some version or another of somebody making a motion trying to get financial transparency, and every one of them have been rebuffed. Mm. This one uh, has been referred to the executive committee where they are considering it, and um, they may or may not bring it out for a vote in, uh, in Indianapolis. I'm praying that they will and that we'll have you know, messengers and pastor, pastors there uh, to vote in favor of um, this 990 financial transparency motion because um, I think our churches deserve that. I think right. you know at our church, uh, Mr. Tate has been doing the finances, you know, finance committee chairman for a long time, has a, a, a Manila folder that thick with financial records. Anybody wants to know anything about finances of the church, they can go to him. He'll show them. You know, he'll find the document. Right. He'll show you. Um, I don't think our entities ought not have. You know that same disposition, right? And so people say, "Well, what's what's the problem? What's going on?" Um, I'd say one: North American Mission Board has half a billion dollars in mm -hmm. assets, and we need a little more transparency about how they're using it. Um, but we have trustees that they're supposed to oversee that, and uh, and in theory, yes. But you look at Southwestern Seminary for two decades, spent deficit spending of six million dollars a year, adds up to. 120 or so million dollars over the course of 20 years of deficit spending. You had to fire two presidents to find it out and mm -hmm. go near bankrupt. Uh, the trustees either didn't know about it or knew about it and didn't do anything. And I don't know which of those is true. Uh, but we need, you know, I think Southwestern was at one time the largest seminary in the world. Right. Um, we ought to know what's going on with the finances right. of that. And it wouldn't require much. And it wouldn't compromise anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's another practical issue of where normal church pastors can be involved. They can uh, contact people on the executive committee and encourage them to, uh, to bring that out for a vote and then go to Indianapolis and vote for it. Right. Absolutely. Well, praying for that as well. But uh, I, I think, you know, I probably we're running up on time here, but um, absolutely. I think that's that is well said. Um, uh, as a convention of churches, um, that is exactly what we are. We are churches and that we do represent a greater good. And there's a lot of great things, especially through missions that our, our convention does. But um, there are issues and there's definitely transparency needs to 
needs to happen. Um, and kind of ending on a hopeful note, um, like you said earlier, if our convention is doing what it can do in doing God's will, it is powerful enough to have a massive impact like the IMB does, like Absolutely. missions does. And I believe that is something we should all get behind because we know that there is great possibility um, when we are all working together for the great scale. Absolutely. We can do so much more, you know, again, cliche, but true. We can do so much more together than we can do apart. Um, talk, you know, we're talking about some of the problems there. I don't mean to be overly uh, negative or, you know, complaining right. Uh, right. about those things. I think we need to, to deal with the issues, but we do need to recognize the, uh, the great good that is being done um, by our convention. I can, I can remember being at IMB meetings and just looking around at all these missionaries, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, what's the old Sesame Street thing? One, one of these things does, just doesn't belong. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> right. and it was me. Um, and just thinking about, just admiring, you know, people that are in hard places doing hard things for the glory of Christ. And so I think we need to acknowledge those things that are that are really, really good. And we need to praise those things when we see them that Absolutely. are really, really good. And we also need to recognize the opportunity for good that we could do if we had the will to, the will to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and if we would hold fast to the scriptures and obey the scriptures in everything, you know, that Christ commands us to do and teaches us to do and take, the, you know, all the, again, all the Bible for all of life. We do that as a convention of churches. There's an enormous amount of opportunity for good, uh, both heavenly and earthly good. Um, and so I think we need to give ourselves to that and not be distracted by these other things. But we're going to have to get some things in order in order to do that. Right. Absolutely. Rhett, thank you so much, man. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, is there anything else you want to add before, before we close out, man? Just uh, I'm grateful to be able to come and, and talk with you. And so really have enjoyed uh, the, the episodes of the show that I've watched. And so just grateful for the work that you guys are doing. And so thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you, Rhett. We're going to put a um, link in the description also for um, First Baptist Traveler's Rest. That's uh, That way you can look at that. And so I think there's also the other, other links for um, Love Life Greenville and yep. Equal Protection. Um, all those links will be in the description. So if you if you if you want to know more about that, um, Rhett has written a couple of books. So uh, make sure to check out his bio on there on the website and um, look for any of that stuff. But Rhett, thank you so much, man. Enjoy this conversation thank you. today. Much appreciated. Yes, sir. I'm Wilson Paris, and that's a good word. <laughs>